Hello, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemarie Anque, bringing you readings from the following publications. History.com, Black Enterprise, The Community Voice, The Grio, The Root, Ebony, and Blavity. Today, I'll begin with our first article titled, Father's Day 2022, written by History.com editors, updated June 13th, 2022. The nation's first Father's Day was celebrated on June 19th, 1910. However, it was not until 1972, 58 years after President Woodrow Wilson made Mother's Day official, that the day honoring fathers became a nationwide holiday in the United States. Father's Day 2022 will occur on Sunday, June 19th. The Mother's Day we celebrate today has its origins in the peace and reconciliation campaigns of the post-Civil War era. During the 1860s, at the urging of activist Anne Reeves Jarvis, one divided West Virginia town celebrated Mother's Work Days that brought together the mothers of Confederate and Union soldiers. However, Mother's Day did not become a commercial holiday until 1908, when inspired by Jarvis' daughter, Anna Jarvis, who wanted to honor her own mother by making Mother's Day a national holiday, the John Wanamaker Department Store in Philadelphia sponsored a service dedicated to mothers in its auditorium. Thanks in large part to this association with, with retailers who saw a great potential for profit in the holiday, Mother's Day caught on right away. In 1909, 45 states observed the day, and in 1914, President Woodrow Wilson approved a resolution that made the second Sunday in May a holiday in honor of that tender, gentle army, the Mothers of America. The campaign to celebrate the nation's fathers did not meet with the same enthusiasm. Perhaps, as one florist explained, fathers haven't the same sentimental appeal that mothers have. On July 5, 1908, a West Virginia church sponsored the nation's first event explicitly in honor of fathers, a Sunday sermon in memory of the 362 men who had died in the previous December's explosions at the Fairmont Coal Company Mines in Monongah, M-O-N-O-N-G-A-H, but it was a one-time commemoration and not an annual holiday. The next year, a Spokane, Washington woman named Sonora Smart Dodd, one of six children raised by a widower, tried to establish an official equivalent to Mother's Day for male parents. She went to local churches, the YMCA, shopkeepers, and government officials to drum up support for her idea, and she was successful. Washington State celebrated the nation's first statewide Father's Day on June 19, 1910. Slowly, the holiday spread. 
1916, President Wilson honored the day by using telegraph signals to unfurl a flag in Spokane when he pressed a button in Washington, D.C. In 1924, President Calvin Coolidge urged state governments to observe Father's Day. Today, the day honoring fathers is celebrated in the United States on the third Sunday of June. In other countries, especially in Europe and Latin America, fathers are honored on St. Joseph's Day, a traditional Catholic holiday that falls on March 19th. Many men, however, continue to disdain the day. As one historian writes, they scoffed at the holiday's sentimental attempts to domesticate manliness with flowers and gift-giving, or they derided the proliferation of such holidays as a commercial gimmick to sell more products, often paid for by the father himself. During the 1920s and the 1930s, a movement arose to scrap Mother's Day and Father's Day altogether in favor of a single holiday, Parents' Day. Every year on Mother's Day, pro-Parents' Day groups rallied in New York City's Central Park, a public reminder, said Parents' Day activists and radio performer Robert Spear, S-P-E-R-E, that both parents should be loved and respected together. Paradoxically, however, the Great Depression derailed this effort to combine and decommercialize the holidays. Struggling retailers and advertisers redoubled their efforts to make Father's Day a second Christmas for men, promoting goods such as neckties, hats, socks, pipes, and tobacco, golf clubs, and other sporting goods and greeting cards. When World War II began, advertisers began to argue that celebrating Father's Day was a way to honor American troops and support the war effort. By the end of the war, Father's Day may not have been a federal holiday, but it was a national institution. In 1972, in the middle of a hard-fought presidential re-election campaign, Richard Nixon signed a proclamation making Father's Day a federal holiday at last. Today, economists estimate that Americans spend more than $1 billion each year on Father's Day gifts. This article was titled, Father's Day 2022, written by History.com editors, updated June 13, 2022. The next article is titled, Ford Motor Company's plant in Kansas City is adding 1,100 people to meet demand for electric vehicles. Written by Frank Morris, The Community Voice, June 2, 2022. The company said it's Claycomo, C-L-A-Y-C-O-M-O, plant northeast of Kansas City, will add a third shift, producing its popular transit and e-transit delivery vans. It's a good time to be in the electric vehicle business. Ford Motor Company announced on Thursday that it's launching a major expansion here. 
The company said its Claycomo plant northeast of Kansas City will add a third shift producing its popular transit and e-transit delivery vans, requiring 1,100 new workers and a $95 million investment to keep the van production side of the plant running almost around the clock. The news came as part of an announcement detailing a major expansion of Ford's manufacturing operations in the Midwest. We're going to create 6,200 UAW, United Auto Worker, jobs and invest $3.7 billion in Ford plants across the Midwest. Kumar Galhotra, G-A-L-H-O-T-R-A, a top Ford executive said at a news conference in Ohio this morning. Most of the new jobs, 3,200 of them, will be added in Michigan, where Ford produces the Ford Ranger pickup truck, Ford Mustang, and the popular F-150 Lightning Electric pickup. Ford's Claycomo assembly plant in the Northland also makes F-150s, but not the battery-powered variant. Today's announcement does not affect F-150 production there. An assembly plant in Ohio will add 1,800 union jobs to start production of a new electric commercial vehicle, details about which are still under wraps. Ford also unveiled good news for its current workers. We're committing $1 billion over five years to improve the work experience in our factories, Kumar said. Ford said it will provide better break rooms and stock them with healthier food as well as improve lightning and other conditions. It said it's also converting 3,000 temporary workers to full-time status with full benefits. General Motors and the automotive group Stellantis, S-T-E-L-L-A-N-T-I-S, have also recently announced multi-billion dollar investments in domestic electric vehicle production. This article was titled, Ford Motor Company's plant in Kansas City is adding 1,100 people to meet demand for electric vehicles. Written by Frank Morris, The Community Voice, June 2, 2022. The next article is titled, Pandemic Hits Black Women the Hardest. Here's Why. Written by Jessica Washington, The Root, June 7, 2022. The idea that everything is back to normal is tempting. Politicians on both sides of the political aisle have encouraged folks to toss off their masks, leave their vaccine cards at home, and push their way into crowded subway cars and return to equally crowded office spaces. It's no surprise, then, that life-saving policies like the eviction moratorium and the child tax credit, which gave most families with children $250 to $300 a month, have also been shelved. The result is that Black families and Black women, especially, have been left to face the continued economic fallout without a safety net. Black women are most likely to be experiencing 
food insufficiency. They're more likely to be behind on rent and mortgage payments, said Amy Matusi, M-A-T-S-U-I, Income Security Director at the National Women's Law Center. So they have not all recovered from the recession, and they're still experiencing more hardship than the population overall. An analysis of the U.S. Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey, conducted by the National Women's Law Center after many of the relief policies ended, backs up Matsui's point. Between March 2nd and March 14th, more than 23% of Black women reported not having enough food to eat, and over 44% of Black women with children reported that they sometimes or often could not afford enough food for their children. In February, Black women's unemployment rate was more than double the rate for white men and more than a percentage point above Black women's pre-pandemic unemployment rate, according to a separate National Women's Law Center report. Unlike white families who were more likely to use the child tax credit to add to their savings, Black and Hispanic families were more likely to use the tax credit to pay for essentials like food and bills. So when the assistance went away, but the pandemic did not, it's not surprising that many Black families fell back into poverty. Although there isn't a lot of specific data looking at the impact of losing the tax credits on Black women Studies looking at the effect on Black children are telling. After the monthly tax credits ended, the monthly child poverty rate for Black children went up from 19.5% to 25.4%, according to the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at the Columbia University. In real terms, roughly 662 100,000 more Black children entered into poverty. The things that have helped during the past years are policies that people needed, said Matsui. They needed them before the pandemic, and they're going to need them now going forward. It wasn't just the child tax credits that went away. The ending of the eviction moratorium and many rental assistance programs has also dealt a deadly blow to Black women attempting to recover. At the beginning of March, roughly 24% of Black women reported being behind on rent payments, according to the National Women's Law Center census analysis. And about 15% of Black women reported being behind on their mortgage. The combination of rollbacks of eviction moratoria and programs running out of emergency rental assistance are two factors increasing the risk of evictions for Black women, wrote Sarah Hasmer, H-A-S-S-M-E-R, a housing expert at the National Women's Law Center in an email. Bringing back these policies in the form of legislation like the much-embattled Build Back Better Act require acknowledging two inconvenient truths. 
First, that the pandemic and its economic impact are far from over. And second, that the status quo for Black women and Black families was never okay. And if we cannot bring ourselves as a society to make those acknowledgments, well, Matsui says that the fallout for Black women who will now struggle to plan for retirement is going to compound itself. It's not just a particular window of time, she said. There's going to be a snowball effect, and we should really be concerned about that. This article is titled, Pandemic Hits Black Women the Hardest. Here's Why, by Jessica Washington. The Root, June 7, 2022. The next article is titled, Inside Karine Jean-Pierre's First Day as White House Press Secretary, Representation Matters, written by April Ryan, The Grio, May 17, 2022. Representation Matters, said Karine Jean-Pierre on a historic day at the White House during Monday's press briefing, which marked her first official day on the job as press secretary. As she noted at the podium, Jean-Pierre became the first Black American gay woman and immigrant to serve as a spokesperson for the President of the United States. Somewhat overshadowing the historic moment was the tragic racially motivated mass shooting at a Topps-friendly market in Buffalo, New York, that claimed the lives of 10 African Americans. Jean-Pierre humanized the moment, explaining that she, like most Americans, routinely go to the supermarket, emphasizing the horror of the innocent lives slain during such an ordinary activity as shopping for groceries. On weekends, Jean-Pierre said she often takes her seven-year-old daughter out with her to the grocery store, adding a personal touch to an otherwise horrific tragedy that targeted a community because of the color of their skin. Ironically, Monday's press briefing marked a celebratory moment for Jean-Pierre and Black America because of the color of her skin. After reading the names of the 10 victims killed in the Buffalo mass shooting, Jean-Pierre then transitioned to acknowledging the historic moment that many in the packed room were awaiting. In this role, in this room, standing behind this podium, I am obviously acutely aware that my presence at this podium represents a few firsts, Jean-Pierre said. I am a black gay immigrant woman, the first of all three of those to hold this position. Jean-Pierre, the daughter of Haitian immigrants, also recognized that she stood on the shoulders of those who came before her. Monday was far from the usual back and forth between the White House press secretary and reporters. The room was packed with members of the White House press corps, photographers, and even special guest attendees, black staffers, a part of the White House communications team who wanted to witness Jean-Pierre's historic moment. On her first day, as White House press secretary, Jean-Pierre notably and painstakingly took a large number of questions from reporters. 
The briefing was longer than usual, lasting more than an hour. After the briefing, Jean-Pierre participated in a routine White House press office debrief of the day's briefing. Congratulatory words, laughter, and emotions were both felt and heard emanating from the office. A few minutes later, the new press secretary took part in an impromptu photo shoot with the New York Times on the West Colonnade of the White House, which borders the Rose Garden and connects the West Wing and the Oval Office. During the briefing, several questions were posed to Jean-Pierre about this historic moment. The griot was in the room and asked the new White House press secretary about the significance of her being in the new space that she occupies. April Ryan. You're making history now on so many levels. So many communities are so proud of you. We're hearing it on social media everywhere. You're the first. What does that mean for the broader community, particularly Washington? White, male-dominated, still, even though we had the first Black president. The broader society that is the majority does not look like you. What does this say? Because it's not window dressing. It's more than that. Karine Jean-Pierre. It's a very good question, April. I'm going to answer it in kind of a personal way, if that's okay, since you asked it in a personal way. So I have not read a lot of things that have been written about me because I wanted to focus on the work at hand. And I do believe it's not about me. It's about this place. It's about the work that I have to do every day that we all have to do as a team to make sure that we communicate with you and communicate with the broader public. But there was something that moved me. And I think this speaks to what you're asking, which is there was a story about my elementary school. I went to Franklin Elementary School in Hampstead, New York. They talked to the students about me. And this moment, and this administration too, which is very important, because I don't think I would be here without President Biden. Yes, I stand on so many shoulders, but it does matter who sits in the Oval Office as well. That is very, very real. These kids wrote me a letter, and in the letter, they talked about how they can dream bigger because of me standing behind this podium. And that matters. Representation matters, and not just for girls, but also for boys. And so what I hope is that young people get to dream big and dream bigger than they have before by seeing me stand here and answer all of your questions and have a healthy dialogue as I discussed. And so I think it is important and I so appreciate the question. Thank you. This article was titled Inside Karine Jean-Pierre's Historic First Day as White House Press Secretary. Representation Matters, written by April Ryan, The Griot, May 17, 2022. The next article is titled, Kansas Will Join Summer 988 Suicide Phone Hotline Launch, written by Ricardo Alonso Valdivar, The Community Voice, June 2, 2022. Governor Laura Kelly recently signed Senate Bill 19, 
adding Kansas to the growing number of states who will participate in the new phone number 988 to reach the National Suicide Prevention Network. Starting in July, people in crisis and those trying to help them will have a three-digit number to dial for help. Three-digit dialing to reach suicide hotline counselors has long been a goal for mental health advocates, lawmakers in Congress, the Federal Communications Commission, and the telecommunications industry. The Biden administration says it wants to help deliver an on-schedule launch this summer. The new 988 number will also handle text and chat. We know that remembering a three-digit number beats a 10-digit number any day, particularly in times of crisis. And I encourage every state to rev up planning to implement 988 for the sake of saving lives. Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra said in a statement, Mental health experts are hoping that the three-digit number will deliver a breakthrough in assisting people in crisis who may otherwise try to harm themselves. They predict call center demand will skyrocket once the new system is in place and people know about it. People who call, text, or chat 988 will be able to reach trained counselors who belong to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network. Counselors at more than 180 local centers listen to people in crisis and provide support, connecting them with other services as may be needed. According to the Lifeline, the new dialing code will be available throughout the country starting July 16th. This article is titled, Kansas Will Join Summer 988 Suicide Phone Hotline Launch by Ricardo Alonso Zaldivar, The Community Voice, June 2nd, 2022. The next article is the cover story for Ebony, titled Back to Her Roots, written by Rhonda Racha Penrice, P-E-N-R-I-C-E, photography by Keith Major. Her, H-E-R, sparkling in purple, performing with one of her musical idols, Lenny Kravitz, flexing all his rock star badness in a bronze jumpsuit on this year's Grammy stage to his 1993 hit, Are You Gonna Go My Way? A song she's often performed solo, was much more than a memorable moment destined to be enshrined in the Grammy vault of great performances. For Kenny Wilson, Her's dad, who began nurturing his daughter musically before she could basically walk, watching her trade guitar riffs with rocker Kravis was a full circle moment. It was kind of surreal for me to see her on stage with Lenny Kravitz because I used to have her watch his concerts, Wilson shares with Ebony. Hey, check out Lenny. He sounds cool. He's hip. He's different. He's black, but he's also rock and he's blues, and he's totally funk, he'd tell her. You want to be in that lane, he insisted, because people forget that we invented rock and roll, so let's remind them. Wilson 
who played music all his life, even leading the cover band Urban Bushman in Vallejo, California, where Her was born and raised, confesses he never imagined his daughter, Gabriela Sarmiento Wilson, Her's given name, would share stages with the music legends he introduced to her as a kid. Truthfully, he was just looking for ways for him to bond with his firstborn. Gabby was my first child. I think I was 28 when she was born, and I was nervous about having a daughter, he recalls. I think one of the ways that I was able to bond with Gabby is through music. Her, who began building a national name for herself as a musical prodigy as early as age 10, starting with a dazzling 2002 appearance on the Today Show, featuring her soulful rendition of Alicia Keys' 2003 hit, If I Ain't Got You, knows her dad has been pivotal to her success. All those times her dad's band played their family parties or set up in their backyard just to jam is partially responsible for getting her here. I was able to learn about so many different styles of music and so much history in music because of him, the Filipina and Black soul singer tells Ebony. Because of his love for music and him telling me about visiting Jimi Hendrix's grave in Seattle, all those stories and all those lessons were just so fascinating to me. I think they really carried me into this life, into this journey I have now. Because karaoke accompanied by the Magic Mike programmed with hundreds of songs is a communal staple. Her, when she was younger, regularly put on a show for family and friends. As she got better, she began performing with her dad and his band at gigs, like the annual Vallejo Juneteenth celebration and the Listen and Be Heard Poetry Cafe. Still, Wilson says he didn't realize how truly musically gifted his daughter was until a certain one-gloved icon began to take notice. Gabby was, I want to say, 12. We were in L.A. at a recording studio owned by producer Rodney Jerkins, a.k.a. Dark Child, he shares. Rodney had been talking to Michael about Gabby. We said bye to Rodney and got in our car. And as we were at a red light across from the studio, he ran up to our car and said, Roll the window down. Roll the window down, Gabby. There's somebody that wants to talk to you. We're like, what the heck is going on? And he put the phone in her hand. It was on speakerphone. And a voice came on and said, Hey, Gabby, this is Michael. I've been watching your YouTube videos. Rodney's been telling me all about you. And we're like, Michael who? Who's Michael? So Rodney's like, Michael Jackson. It was surreal. Her mom was crying. I love you, Michael. Oh, you guys should come by the house. We can barbecue. We can hang out. We can talk. He was like, you remind me so much of myself when I was a little kid, Gabby. I think that was another moment in her life that I'm like, oh, okay. If Michael Jackson is calling to talk to my daughter, maybe there's something going on here, adds Wilson. Exhibiting virtuously as both a musician and singer, he says she's performed songs with the passion typically birthed out lived experience. I had been around a lot of children that played music, but none of them really 
had that old feel, like they've been here before vibe. Like, how are you feeling this music so deeply? And you're only nine years old. I recognized early that she had an old soul. She had a really old soul. As for his daughter's music career today, Wilson, who looks forward to retiring in the next year or so, after 31 years as an iron worker, is proudly hands-off. When they come together, they often go fishing, like they did when she was a kid. When he does speak to her about the industry, it's to remind her, that record label, those people, work for you. Hence the decision to use the acronym H-E-R, HER, which stands for Having Everything Revealed, instead of Gabby Wilson, professionally, and donned sunglasses partially blocking her face to refocus attention on her talent, not her looks or her personal life, was all hers. I had to figure out who I was as an artist. Just because you sing and play instruments, that doesn't make you an artist, explained the I used to know her singer. Knowing who I was going to become and what I was going to create, and how that was authentically me, knowing what that looks like, it took time, and I had to take time to figure out who that was going to be, and it had to come from me. Her dad's early guidance, she feels, has empowered her to stand in her artistic integrity in the tough music industry. He's always taught me my value. That's key in life, and especially in this industry that I'm in, to just know what you deserve. He set the tone for love in my life and has shown me what it means to be loved by a man especially. To tell your kid every day that they're going to be great and that they are great, I think that's given me so much confidence, she shares. It's been a key thing in this industry because it's so easy to seek validation from other people. But to know that I have that foundation is everything. My dad would always say, if you don't love this without the money, you're not going to love it with it. Those things have carried me thus far, and I think kept me grounded too. As she began releasing EPs under her adopted moniker, the music stuck. In 2019, she scored two Grammys for Best R&B Album for her and Best R&B Performance for her duet, Best Part, with Daniel Caesar. To date, she scored five Grammys out of 21 nominations, including one this year for Best Traditional R&B Performances for Fight For You, from the film Judas and the Black Messiah, about the rise and murder of Black Panther and freedom fighter Fred Hampton, for which she also won an Oscar the year before. I was so blown away, she says, of that win, which she accepted in an outfit that paid homage to the one Prince wore the night he won his Oscar for Purple Rain. I still can't believe that I have one. It's sitting on my dining room table. That she won the Grammy for Song of the Year for I Can't Breathe, composed in the same protest vein of Fight for You, speaks to not only her versatility as an artist, but also how deeply her music reflects the times in all aspects. Released shortly after police officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, I Can't Breathe was played often during Black Lives Matter protests 
following the murder of Floyd and others. I think it's always been important for me to just say how I feel. And it's so crazy that we're seeing these things happen, even still to this day. It's not very much different from back in the day, in the late 70s, with the rioting and protesting. It's all happening again now, she continues. I'm proud to have written those songs, but it's sad and unfortunate that I do have to talk about these things that are still happening. Finding balance in her music is also important. As a young woman turning 25 later this month, she's still navigating all aspects of life, including relationships and fun. On Janae Aiko, J-H-E-N-E-A-I-K-O-B-S, her proves she is more than capable of clapping back on an ex while on Come Through with Chris Brown from her album, Back of My Mind. She proves she can turn up. 2019 tinged Slow Down with Skip Marley showed off her sex appeal. And on her latest album, she's collaborated with various rappers, including YG, Slide, Corday, Trauma, and Lil Baby, Find A Way. Moreover, she's breaking out of her harmonic comfort zone to try acting and is making her big screen debut as Squeak in the musical version of The Color Purple, directed by Black is King's Blitz Bazawo, B-A-Z-A-W-U-L-E, alongside a heavy-hitting cast, including Anjane Ellis, Tariq P. Henson, Coleman Domingo, and Lou Gossett Jr. I don't know that I knew if it was the right one for me, she says of the film, but I knew I wanted a challenge and I knew that I would enjoy it. I knew that it would be fun and that the cast is amazing. She's also stretching into brand endorsements and collaborations. She's a global ambassador for L'Oreal Paris, which she says is fitting because the first time I ever started wearing makeup, I wore L'Oreal because they were the only makeup brand that had my specific foundation color. In addition to be proud to be repping curly hair girls for the international beauty juggernauts Elviv hair care line, and with the Her and DIFF eyewear collection, she's turned her signature accessory into a charitable cause that allows people to both look good and do good. Music, however, will always have her heart. In addition to opening for Coldplay on their Music of the Spheres world tour, she's been supporting her album, Back of My Mind, for which she earned eight Grammy nominations this year with her own mini tour. The different moods of R&B is how she describes the album, noting that every song represents a different time and that it's very much late 60s, late 70s inspired, but new R&B with some hip hop appeal. Appreciating and representing Black music traditions is just part of her DNA. Her dad made sure of it. Born in Los Angeles, but raised by his grandparents until 12 in Odora, Arkansas, a small town whose population today is just under 2,300 people. Wilson was steeped in Black music traditions, nurtured and preserved in the Deep South. My grandmother played piano in the church, and so that's why I said, if I ever have kids one day, I'm going to raise them. 
just like my grandparents raised me, playing music. His daughter's musical education also encompassed her listening and studying it too. I bought her a Mahalia Jackson box CD set that had all of her greatest hits in it. And I'd say, Gabby, you want to learn how to sing. Let's listen to Mahalia Jackson. Then we got into listening to the gospel singer, Kim Burrell, and to Yolanda Adams. And then, as she got older, I was like, okay, well, let's listen to B.B. King because I wanted her to learn how to play the guitar. And though she plays several instruments, guitar, as her Grammy performance with Lenny Kravitz attested, remains her most impressive, especially since it's still so rare to see any woman playing the epic acoustic instrument. On top of that, far too few people know that a black female guitarist, Sister Rosetta Tharp, T-H-A-R-P-E, who influenced Little Richard, Elvis Presley, and Chuck Berry, was an early pioneer of rock and roll. For many young girls, her is their archetype, and it's a role both she and her father cherish. For her dad, his greatest hope was that his daughter would change the whole perception of what being a black woman that plays electric guitar is, and that hope has been realized. I just got to go to Paisley Park, and that was insane to see where Prince did that concert DVD that I played over and over and over again with my dad, she shares. It's really dope that I can live that dream, especially for my dad. I often think that this is for him because I know he believed in me more than anybody. So it's cool to be continuing that and to now be in the position of some of the artists that I grew up watching, she continues, and to now hear about young girls at home doing the same thing I was doing, but with me watching my video and going, I want to play guitar and I want to do that. It's mind-blowing. This article is on the cover of June 2002 Ebony, titled Back to Her Roots, Her and Dad Kenny Wilson, on the power of Black music, story by Rhonda Racha Penrice, June 2002 Ebony. The next article is titled Addressing the Digital Divide, Five Tips on How to Accelerate Digital Equity by Joshua Rogers, Blavity News, March 10th, 2022. A certain type of millennial understands the working transitions of technology, from bulky computers, dial-up internet, and cell phones, where the closest thing to an app was Snake. Many millennials have gone through the joys and challenges of evolving technology. And while technology is more far-reaching than it was in the 90s and early 2000s, there's still an access issue for certain groups of people. COVID-19 has brought many lessons about healthcare, equity, and social justice to the forefront. But one of the most pressing is the gap that exists in the digital world. This is the pandemic of the digital divide, whether it's students using virtual learning platforms, patients navigating online doctor visits, or adults assimilating to remote working platforms, being forced to navigate this situation 
has shown a glaring light on the issues of proper access to technology and the utilization of required skills. This reality may be daunting, but it doesn't exist without a solution. HP is leveraging its technology, resources, expertise, and partnerships to help actively close the digital divide. In 2021, HP announced a bold goal to accelerate digital equity for 150 million people by 2030. As part of this effort, HP is making sure Black Americans and other traditionally marginalized populations have a seat at the table to facilitate courageous conversations that drive meaningful, relevant innovation and have positive, lasting impact. Recently, HP engaged in a roundtable discussion with Blavity CEO Morgan DeBon, D-E-B-A-U-N, Ohio Health Senior Director of Health Partnerships, Autumn Glover, G-L-O-V-E-R, National Digital Inclusion Alliance Executive Director, Angela Seifer, S-I-E-F-E-R, and Global Business Coalition for Education Executive Director, Justin Van Fleet, V-A-N-F-L-E-E-T. As part of HP's support of Hashtag Digital Inclusion Week, these thought leaders came together to discuss access to resources, technology, quality content, and digital literacy as a fundamental human right. The conversation also focused on how organizations and individuals can be intentional about creating scalable systems and solutions to help advance digital equity. Below are some tips on how any organization can also be part of this intentional work. Pursue understanding. Pursuing understanding means building trust within the community. Acknowledge the technical capability and skills of individuals from historically underserved communities. Creating a baseline of this information will help any organization understand how to scale when developing resources and initiatives to meet individuals and communities where they are. Learning from the community allows solutions to have greater value and impact. As a point of action, HP collaborated with the Aspen Institute to launch the Digital Equity Accelerator, hashtag Accelerate Digital Equity, in February 2022, a multi-million dollar initiative focused on global digital equity. The Accelerator will support participating nonprofits in scaling their innovative approaches to help meet the needs of underserved communities affected by the digital divide. HP is backing the Accelerator with access to innovative technology, as well as more than $100,000 in capacity building grants from each participating organization. Develop a tech equity plan. There's a popular saying, proper planning prevents poor performance. Addressing systemic issues like the tech divide has to be approached strategically. Creating an equity plan will provide insight and a potential framework on any solution that's developed and how to implement them. 
One way to do this is by learning who's doing the work in the community right now. Oftentimes, people and organizations are already putting in the effort and leveraging that work will support whatever plan is developed. As an example, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance has a digital inclusion startup manual that organizations can use as a starting point in developing a personalized digital equity plan. Advocate for access. Once a plan is established, use your influence to encourage others to act. Are there existing digital causes you can leverage your platform to support? What type of partnerships can you develop? How can legislation be advanced? What are the specific resources needed? Rallying support around the cause of digital equity creates a communal effort. It helps alleviate the burden a single organization might face when tackling the issue. Establishing partnerships will help determine the margins that exist in the communities and build out resources to minimize it. Support digital skill building. Skills around tech are not innate. They must be cultivated. Programs and initiatives that teach competency around technical skills beyond the mastery of social media can prepare individuals for an emerging job market. Investing in building digital skills is as integral to closing the digital divide as securing access to a device and broadband connection. The HP Foundation, Hewitt Packard, has a free program, HP Life, that provides skills training programs for entrepreneurs, business owners, and lifelong learners all over the world. With more than 30 courses available in eight languages, HP Life gives people all over the world the opportunity to build skills for the future by providing access to free accessible IT and business skills training courses. While there's no universal solution for accelerating digital equity, there are intentional efforts that can be implemented to support the cause. From training and education to developing fluency with technology, everyone deserves access to tech. This article was titled, Addressing the Digital Divide, Five Tips on How to Accelerate Digital Equity by Joshua Rogers, Blavity News, March 10th, 2022. The next article is titled, Black Female Owned Brand, Afro Unicorn Brings Assortment of Party Supplies to Walmart, written by Black Enterprise Editors, June 8, 2022. The new line of more than 20 exclusive products joins the retailer's roster of celebration brands in over 1,500 stores across the country and on walmart.com according to a press release. With this launch, April Showers, S-H-O-W-E-R-S, the founder and chief executive officer of Afro Unicorn, shatters the glass ceiling and becomes one of the first Black female-owned businesses to enter Walmart's celebrations party category. The new line from Afro Unicorn features everything you need to throw the most magical unicorn party celebrate a birthday or graduation, host a summer barbecue, or commemorate both big and small milestones. 
The new collection includes party staples like plates, napkins, balloons, decorations, and pinatas. Other highlights from the brand include unique favors like multi-color faux hair clips, sequin journals, and an Afro unicorn stuffed animal. These colorful products were created to speak directly to the black community. As the world's largest retailer, Walmart continues to build an inclusive supply chain that reflects our customers and provides products and services that resonate and meet our customers' needs, said Laura Rush, R-U-S-H, Senior Vice President of Entertainment, Toys, and Seasonal at Walmart. We are excited to have another Black-owned business join our supplier community and warmly welcome Afro Unicorn to the fold. We look forward to our customers celebrating life milestones with these great new products. The unicorn features an Afro-style mane and comes in a range of black shades, vanilla, caramel, and mocha. Shower said it was important for the unicorn to come in more than one shade to mirror the array of black complexions of her customers. April knows firsthand how important representation matters on store shelves. My main goal for Afro Unicorn is to ensure black girls and women feel unique, divine, and magical, said Showers. Afro Unicorn is more than a line of products. It's a movement to make sure black people are represented and have a seat at the table. I'm grateful Walmart understands how important this is and gave me that seat at the table. Now, millions of little girls will grow up with products on store shelves that represent and celebrate them. The Lifestyle brand is already making an impact by empowering underrepresented black women and young girls to embrace their beauty. Afro Unicorn launched in 2019 as a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business. The collaboration with Walmart marks Afro Unicorn's first move into retail. Products are available in store shelves nationwide and Puerto Rico, next to iconic children's brands in the party aisle, allowing millions of little girls to see themselves and their beauty in a black unicorn. The Afro Unicorn brand will expand into apparel at more than 3,800 Walmart stores in June 2022 offering two cute styles of leggings and shirts for girls. The brand has additional category launches at Walmart, including holiday planned for later in the year. Showers has also signed multiple licensing deals. Showers credits her dedicated online community for getting her foot in the door at Walmart after a video went viral featuring a four-year-old girl wearing an Afro unicorn t-shirt. The video was shared by numerous celebrities, including Oprah, Viola Davis, and Tina Knowles, and then caught the eye of a Walmart associate. That inspired the Walmart merchant to reach out to April about a possible collaboration with the retail giant. For more information on the launch, please visit www.afrounicorn.com or follow the brand on Instagram and Facebook. This article was titled, Black Female-Owned Brand, Afro Unicorn, 
brings assortment of party supplies to Walmart by Black Enterprise Editors, June 8, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Ongway. Thanks for joining me.